Media Freedom in a Changing World, a podcast produced by the Center for International Media Law and Policy Studies in the Media School at Indiana University, Bloomington. My name is Anthony Fargo, and I am the director of the Center for International Media Law and Policy Studies at Indiana University's Media School. I will be hosting this episode of Media Freedom in a Changing World. Our guest is Aaron Carroll, professor of law and legal practice at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Professor Carroll's teaching and research interests lie at the intersection of legal analysis and communication, rhetoric, the free press, and technology. A journalist before becoming a lawyer, Professor Carroll assesses how law can help reinvigorate and reimagine the press so that journalists and journalism can better serve democracy. Welcome, Professor Carroll. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. And we're thrilled to have you. Thanks. Journalism has always been a dangerous profession to some extent. Uh, One of Indiana University's most famous alumni, uh, war correspondent Ernie Pyle, was killed while covering the last days of World War II. More recently, dozens of journalists were injured, some permanently, by protesters and police while covering Black Lives Matters protests around the country in 2020. We've also seen the murders of five newspaper employees in Annapolis, Maryland a few years ago, and more recently, the slaying of Jeff German, a Las Vegas Review Journal investigative reporter just last year. The man indicted for that crime was a county official who had been the subject of some of German's reporting. Obviously, we have laws against assault and homicide, but you noted in a Denver Law Review article last year that the types of challenges journalists face now are different because of technology, among other things. How is that so, and why is the law currently not adequate to deal with these challenges? Thanks for that question. I mean, you're right to bring up that there's a long history of violence against journalists. This isn't an entirely new thing. We did see a huge spike in violence, as you noted, um, and as my paper talks about during the protests around the murder of George Floyd. And the number of journalists who were assaulted during those protests really skyrocketed that year. And sadly, a lot of those assaults were at the hands of law enforcement. But yes, this is really an ongoing problem. And as you say, and as I note in my article, there's an explosion of violence in a different realm. And that's the online realm. And it's a lot harder to track what's happening there. But um, researchers have started trying to do that and have um, come up with some really kind of troubling data about the number of um, journalists who are receiving threats online, particularly women journalists, particularly women of color. And the results are kind of astounding about how many of them say they have received these kinds of threats, you know, upwards of three quarters of journalists. Um, And again, the the differential between kind of identity um, and how many threats journalists receive. So, for example, one study showed that black women journalists are 75, 80 percent more likely to receive these threats than white journalists. Um, And as a result, as I argue in my piece, I think this really has the potential for shaping the information environment that we are in, because these kinds of threats are intended to silence people. And when you're intending to silence journalists, especially who, you know, have agenda setting power in our national discourse, it's especially problematic 
Um, as you noted, there are laws in place that could um, take care of these kinds of threats to some degree. So there are federal um, laws against making threats against people. There are federal laws against cyber stalking. Um, and these kinds of laws could be used to prosecute these crimes, although I'm not aware of any data showing that they are being used um, in any kind of forceful way. Um, what I argue in my article, though, is that even if those laws were used, they wouldn't really account for the fact that the victims in, of these cases were members of the press and that these cases really were impacting freedom of expression more generally. And so I think a new approach may be needed just to recognize the nature of the harm here. Certainly, individuals um, suffering violence, suffering threats, that is incredibly important. But we all have to keep in mind this more systemic impact on all of our freedom of expression. In that uh, same article, you suggested you know, one solution might be a law against obstruction of journalism, modeled to some extent after uh, obstruction of justice laws that we already have. Can you talk a bit, bit about why uh, that is needed and what it would actually do? Yeah. So I think in a lot of ways, obstruction of justice provides a really nice analog for what would be helpful here. So um, at the federal level, we have kind of a, a, an array of different federal um, obstruction of justice laws. But as a whole, their goal is really to prevent threats, intimidation, and coercion in the functioning of our judicial administration and our judicial process. And that obviously is a process that's uh, very foundational to democracy. I think in very much the same way, our news gathering and information processes are just as fundamental to democracy. And they are being kind of threatened and coerced in the very very alike ways. And so again, I think it provides a very nice analog. So um, there's an obstruction of justice statute. Again, there are many, but there is kind of a catch-all that really focuses on outlawing threats, um, force of threat, coercion of the judicial administration system. And I think that language could be very easily um, edited, changed. And I do that in the article to show just how the same type of language could apply um, to the news gathering process and interference with journalists who are in the process of news gathering. You had a, a, a an interesting line in that particular article, uh, fear is a mighty censor, which uh, I may have crocheted on something. <laughs> the uh, Congress currently has a bill pending called the Journalist Protection Act. Uh, it's been proposed in previous sessions of Congress and hasn't really gone anywhere. Um, that would seem maybe to at least try to address the physical harm problem. It would make it a crime to uh, assault a journalist uh, with penalties of three to six years in prison uh, if, while the journalist is on the job. But do you see any uh, chance that that's actually going to become law? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you did a little bit of research on that. I was trying to see if the bill had been um, re-upped. I mean, it, it has been uh, floated in several Congresses now and hasn't seemed to gain much traction um, for Whatever reason, I believe it had bipartisan support, but there's not a lot of bills supporting journalists being passed these days out of Congress. Um, I do, I do think that would have some impact, if only to call attention to the plight 
of journalists right now. But again, its impact would be limited because it is limited to physical violence against journalists. And I think that the online violence is far, far, far more prevalent. And as we've seen, as has been proved, um, journalists are often harassed, intimidated, threatened online before they are um, the victims of physical assaults. And so I think kind of nipping this behavior in the bud also has advantages too. Um, and so, you know, I applaud the legislate the legislators who care enough about this issue and want to do this. Um, and all of these things are part of what needs to be a more systemic approach to protecting journalists. Um, but I, do, I don't think that piece of it is going to really get at the problem. That piece, I think, also was initially proposed and got its most traction around the time of the protests around George Floyd's murder when rates of violence against journalists really soared. You know, those rates of physical violence against journalists, the reports have come down. They are still high. They are still higher than they should be. That year was a little bit anomalous. I don't think that's true for online violence against journalists. In a related vein, you uh, earlier wrote in a Maryland Law Review article about the network press uh, and warned that a disconnect exists between the press that we have and the press that our Constitution is capable of protecting. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think our, our Constitution, our First Amendment, is really focused on an institutional press. Um, and even our First Amendment, uh, I think journalists and um, the public think the First Amendment does a lot more than it actually does to protect the press. So the First Amendment has what we call a free speech clause and a free press clause. And um, most of the cases that the Supreme Court has heard about the press, and most of those cases now are decades old, the court has really focused on the free speech clause rather than the free press clause. And it has gone to pains to say that the press does not have greater rights than other speakers. Now, that isn't completely true. Um, you know, in dicta of those cases, which is information in cases that doesn't kind of determine the holding of those cases, the press has spoken, uh, I'm sorry, the court has spoken really glowingly of the press. And I think that rhetoric is super important. Um, but press scholars recently have gone to great pains to say, look, don't rely on the First Amendment to kind of be the press's savior. Certainly don't rely on the Supreme Court right now. There's some really interesting scholarship out there by Rennell Anderson-Jones and Sonia West who have collected every mention of the press in every Supreme Court case since the 1700s. And their findings show pretty conclusively um, that trust in the press and even mentions of the press are declining rapidly in the Supreme Court. And I, the message that I take from their work really is that the Supreme Court is not going to be the savior of the press. The First Amendment is not going to be the savior of the press. And press advocates need to be looking at all kinds of different avenues, legal and otherwise, to protect, reinvigorate, reimagine the press that we have. Some of your work is uh, focused on the language that we use to talk about the press and how it can sometimes get in the, actually the way better protecting the press from some of the challenges it's facing. Uh, for example, you expressed some concerns about the use of the term fake news. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, any of us who are advocates of the press are concerned about that that concept. But I think, you know, the if we look at it from a kind of a rhetorical point of view, it's almost like an oxymoron. News itself really cannot be fake. I mean, if news is, if we assume that news is information that's gone through a vetted process of journalism, then it just necessarily, you know, is doing its best to be true, even though, of course, there are unintentional failings at points. And you know, it's, uh, I think, um, really unfortunate that that term received so much traction, especially during the Trump presidency. And I worry when I even see press advocates and people who otherwise would be pro-press using that term because I think it's undermining. And I actually, you know, not to be too melodramatic, but I think the language that we use to talk about the press is incredibly important. And I think it's important, again, going back to that point of, the press doesn't have a lot of legal doctrinal rights. Uh, again, it is just another speaker under the First Amendment, like any of us individually. And so press scholars, myself included, have talked about the fact that the way we talk about the press is really, really important. And a lot of the language that the glowing language that the Supreme Court justices used in the 60s and 70s to talk about the press is still what journalists hang their hat on. I mean, that they are watchdogs, that they are handmaidens to justice. Um, That language, even if it didn't establish protective doctrine, helped constitute the press as it is. And and we've been at pains to have any language like that from the court or our elected leaders in a long time. Obviously, we had Trump and a lot of the GOP doing exactly the opposite, being anti-press almost became part of the party platform. And I can't say that I've seen the Biden administration going as far in the other direction as I would would have hoped. Well, one uh, thing that has changed uh, recently is that uh, prosecutions of people who have leaked classified information to the press have largely died down yes. since uh, the Obama and Trump administrations uh, both set records for uh, those type of prosecutions. So that is perhaps a step forward. But I think that's true. And I think the Justice Department has put some more durable protections for the press in place um, in the last several years. And so you're right to call out those advances. It's not that it's not that nothing has happened. I think I'm thinking about this because in preparing for today, I was looking at a um, program that's happening in the UK to protect journalists. And I was struck when I was reading about it, how many public officials, including Boris Johnson and many others, were on the record. And I know Boris Johnson's a former journalist himself, but talking about the importance of freedom of the press in the UK and the various things that the government there is doing in order to um, protect journalists, including a lot of training of police departments, making sure that there are liaisons at very various police departments to work with journalists. And um, even if that program has no teeth whatsoever, it struck me that the very fact that it existed and the positive press rhetoric that was part of it was something and was important and was something that we don't have happening here right now. Yeah, we do seem to be in an era where expressing support for the press almost seems to be a negative political issue, which is uh, kind of a scary place to be, I think, at the moment. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm surprised when I'm on social media platforms at various 
people who I think, even if they don't agree with all of the content they're reading, should be appreciative of the fact that we have a free press doing this work and maligning the press. And it's perfectly fine to criticize the press. We need that kind of, as the Supreme Court would call it, caustic pushback against the press. The press makes lots of mistakes, for sure. But I'm just not seeing the balanced kind of discussion. There's not the positive in the ledger there. That's true at the Supreme Court, too. Um, A lot more caustic comments lately from the justices, nothing on the other side of the ledger. So criticism should rightfully be there. But we also need some some pro-press, some press-reinforcing speech in order to boost it in all kinds of ways. And I just don't think that's happening at almost any level. I don't want to take us down a dystopian path here too far, but I did want to ask you a little bit about uh, something you wrote uh, regarding the possibility that we could at some point end up with a, a press without a democracy. Normally, when we talk about press democracy, we say that the press is a fundamental element of a functioning democracy. But you raised the question uh, in one of your articles, uh, what if we lose democracy but still have you know, a functioning press system? Um, you suggested that for the press to survive in a world with a weakened or even non-existent democracy, uh, the press would need to let go of three pathologies, as you put it. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, yeah I wrote this article uh, a couple of years ago, I think at the start of the Ukraine war, um, when I was thinking a lot about autocratic creep, as all of us have been um, in the last five or six years. And I was getting increasingly frustrated by news organizations talking about how they were being pro-democracy because they were creating democracy beats. Um, And I think that's great that the press is creating democracy beats and thinking about how to cover the importance of democracy, slide of democracy um, in thoughtful ways. But I was also thinking, you know, the press is uh, a major democratic institution and there must be other ways in which the press can be promoting democracy, procedural ways, other substantive ways than just through its coverage. Um, And so I talked about some of the things that I think are holding the press back. So one of those things is that I think the American press tends to think it's very exceptional. Um, You can even read writing from New York Times editors, other big First Amendment thinkers very recently talking about just how important the press in the United States is and how it's such a beacon for other nations. And I think there's a lack of humility and a lack of realization that we, we don't know everything about what it is to cover some of these issues. I also think the American press is hyper competitive by nature and not incredibly collaborative. Um, and so a couple of things I talk about are just creating a network of press um, that's more transnational so that American journalists can learn from those journalists in many, many other nations who unfortunately 
um, have had to deal with democratic backslide, with long-term autocratic leaders. And the way the press has to function in those places is different and is often very collaborative. For example, if um, a journalist is being attacked or censored by a government in a particular country, they may find a way to get their story out to another outlet in another country. I've read about even having newspapers printed in other places because we cannot have them you know, printed in the place that you are. I think those networks are going to become increasingly important. They're also increasingly important for really practical reasons, like the economic um, difficulties that the press is having and the enormous amounts of information that the press has coming in and um, trying to deal with it. So um, yeah, just a couple of things for the press to think about institutionally and how it could be a better institutional actor rather than just through the, the coverage. I want to kind of return back to uh, the, the rhetorical uh, side of, of your research for a moment. I know that uh, currently you have a work in progress where you're uh, talking about the word watchdog that is often applied to the press and why that also can sometimes be problematic. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about uh, where you're going with that? Yeah, I'm happy to. It is very much a work in progress. Um, So anyone listening to this that wants to give me feedback should. Um, You know, I I think uh, under Supreme Court precedent, uh, arguably, the watchdog is the preeminent role that the press plays in a democracy. It's a structural role. It's a fourth estate. It is a check on the other branches of government. And this checking function has, um, you know, again, just been preeminent. And I think the press has taken taken that on as its preeminent role, too, and is often the focus of newsrooms. Investigative reporters are kind of lauded within a newsroom. Um, I worry, though, that by having the legal focus be so strongly on this watchdog function, which I see as somewhat hierarchical and definitely caustic or abrasive, that it precludes the court from thinking about all of the other ways that a press can help a democracy and can build democracy. So those of us who are or were journalists know that a lot of journalism, too, is telling people stories and bringing those to others in the community and in that way facilitating empathy, facilitating dialogue, facilitating trust between people in a community. I don't believe that the through the court's you know uh, decisions, it has really seen or appreciated that role of the press. And so while I think the watchdog role, is key and not something that I want to be dismissive about. I think the press really does so much more, has the potential to do so much more. And I worry that that metaphor crowds out a lot of other thinking about what the press could do, especially in the legal realm. Maybe not so much for people studying journalism or communications who may understand better what the press does, but I think in the legal realm, it really occupies the field. Yeah, one popular term that we often apply to the press is the adversarial press, and it's oftentimes taken as a badge of honor. Honor. Right. Uh, And you're suggesting maybe maybe we should... uh, lower the, the temperature perhaps a little bit on that and, and think more about how can we help communities build? I think I'm a little torn. I don't know if I want to lower the temperature or if I want to keep the temperature high but have these other roles as well. And how does one do that within the same organization? And I think that could be difficult, right? But 
But press entities are used to having you've got your sports desk, you've got your business. You can have people doing different things within that organization. Um, and I think uh, we need to find ways to be both critical and collaborative at the same time. And I think a lot of that comes down to very foundational and obvious but time-consuming things like building relationships, right, and being in communities. And that brings us to another whole tremendous issue with the press, which is um, the evisceration of our local news um, you know, economy and um, outlets. And, you know, they are the most trusted news source. And I think it is because of exactly this. They spend time with and get to know those in their community. And um, until we build that back up, I think it's going to it's going to be hard to build trust in the press up more generally. One question that I often get asked when I'm talking to people about, you know, the, the need to protect freedom of the press is I oftentimes have people roll their eyes at me now and say, can you define the press for me? And these days, that is a harder proposition than it used to be um, with all the, you know, the various uh, social media, for example, with all the outlets that people have at their disposal. When you when you're talking about the, uh, the press, what what comes to mind for you? What are what are you what are you envisioning that as? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think in a way it has to be contextual because I think the press can be different things in different situations. So just to give you an example, in the obstruction of journalism article that we were talking about, as I was drafting a statute to think about how we could criminalize interfering with the press, you naturally have to think about what is the press. Well, in that instance, it made sense to me to define the press narrowly because it's a criminal statute we're talking about. We don't want to be punishing um, people for conduct that might seem ambiguous against someone we're not sure would qualify. And so there, I think a very narrow definition might be best. But in other situations, it might be helpful to think more broadly. Um, I do also, at least in one of my pieces, try to distinguish between what I call the media and the press, which for me has been a helpful distinction in my work where the, the main line there is that the press are actually entities trying day in and day out to accomplish their democratic mission. Um, it's a lot about the intent behind the work and then the process to back up that intent. Um, Fox News is part of what I would call the media, but not necessarily part of the press, as we figured out during the recent Dominion voting case. And we got to look under the hood of some of the processes happening there. And I think journalists would agree that they weren't following journalistic norms there. There's also, you know, the former host of Fox News, Tucker Carlson, who would regularly attack journalists on his show. And so I don't think the tent can always be really big, but I think it depends on the context that we're we're looking at, and that the the press can be defined in different contexts for different purposes. I think one traditional way that we've often defined the press is as a, an independent institution. Can the press remain an independent institution? Also, uh, do the kind of consensus building and community building that, that you talked about in some of your articles? Yeah, I, I think in a sense it needs to. I mean, I think the press needs to hold on to this label of institution by which I loosely mean 
groups of people joined together by common practices. And why I think that's so important is that I do think the press needs some heft in our democracy. We have seen at periods where the press has gotten that heft through financial resources that it's been able to be a lobbyist and a litigator on behalf of all of us to fight for free expression. At the same time, um, I I worry about it being an institution that is very elitist, as I think it traditionally has been. And journalists have kind of decided, we're the ones who know what the news is, and we're going to tell you what the news is. And I think that model is changing rapidly, and I think for good reason. And um, I I think the press can remain an institution while still being more collaborative and intentional about interacting with audiences so it doesn't feel so separate. It doesn't feel entirely like that fourth estate, which I think is a really foreboding kind of metaphor that I don't think captures really what we want the press to be. Professor Carroll, thank you so much. Uh, This has been really fascinating and really appreciate you being here. You're welcome. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. This has been Media Freedom in a Changing World.